stars, Leonard Nimoy, Lorraine Gary, and Catherine Hayes. Hello there, and welcome to episode 89 of the Night Guy podcast. My name's Chris Brown. Today we're going to be talking about Shilby Company for you. It was originally broadcast on December the 24th, 1972. It's a teleplay by David Reifel, and it was based on a short story by Andrea Newman and directed by Gerald Perry Finneman, who's better known as a director of photography for the Night Gallery, really. Um, and while certainly this opportunity for Finneman must have been very monumental for him, I'm fairly sure that the majority of people remember this episode as the one with Spock in it. Lest you be turned off by the dim light and the somber mean of this place, let me reassure you that there is nobody here but us art lovers. I'm your tour guide in a place designed to show you the beauty of the unexpected. Our conception of beauty may be a bit different than the norm, for example, some might see something attractive in a goldfish. We, on the other hand, find nothing lovelier than a piranha. Now, this canvas here, dark hallway, door slightly ajar, a rather disquieting red room at the end of the hall, and a very large cat. We suggest to you that while felines may look cute and cuddly and playfully mischievous, our suggestion is that you feed them a bit of milk and get rid of them, because cats are and always have been Satan's familiars. Our painting title is She'll Be Company for You, and it's hung in this place we call The Night Gallery. Our story is about a man called Henry Auden, who's played by Leonard Nimoy. Auden is, um, has a, well, he's just come back from the funeral of his wife called Margaret, who's been disabled for a long time, and uh, Henry's been sole carer. He's not a brilliant man, he's not a perfect man, and he says he did what he could to help her. But um, in truth, he feels more relief at the situation, I think, it's fair to say. Margaret's close friend, Barbara, also sees this kind of sense of relief, doesn't feel that he's really looking after him, you know, he's really only looking after himself. And she hates him for it. Um... She's hanging round after the funeral and needling him, really. And her feign of concern for the fact he's now going to be so lonely, she offers to send over her cat for him to look after while she's on vacation. I can't let you stay all alone in this big house. I don't mind being alone, Barbara. I mind your being alone. And what are you going to do about it? I'll send you my cat. <laughs> She'll be company for you. Yeah. <laughs> Here's everything you need. Her name's Janet. It is safe to say that Henry wants many things in his life now his wife has died, but one of them is not a cat. He is extremely disappointed that then this animal pops up. But even worse than that, it actually triggers something within him. He becomes kind of 
detached and also very, very obsessive about his wife. It brings up a lot of unpleasant memories, memories that he can't really shake. But what's really given him a massive amount of trouble is the fact that Henry sees and hears evidence that there's a much larger cat in the house. Maybe a leopard. An animal that is stalking around the grounds and after him. And he is almost certainly hallucinating. But this cat's presence is not helping him at all and it's chipping away as the last remnants of his sanity. In a last ditch attempt to try and create some kind of distance and therefore create a, a barrier between him and, the ch- and, the, and, and, and his, his very guilty memories about what happened. He starts to live at work. But this doesn't help either. His, uh, his wife, well, his wife, his, uh, his wife memory still haunts him, but also his secretary. His wife's secretary is also sniffing around, basically, kind of insinuating that he might have had a rather dubious hand in his, de- in his wife's death. And where before there was a relationship and an affair, now there's a coldness, and she, again, is somebody else that's massively trying to needle him. He leaves work early and sees evidence that there is a giant cat in fact a tiger which seems to be stalking the house and stalking him he desperately tries to fend the animal away but can't and the animal finally comes in for its kill he retires to his bedroom whimpering for mercy and the animal closes in on him the next day uh, Barbara comes to pick up the cat and sees Henry's body sprawled on the bed, clawed to death, while the cat makes takes a drink from his blood. It's coming. My watch has stopped. I could bar the door with furniture, but that would only delay it. My hand hurts, Margaret. Oh, God, I'm alone. Is this what you wanted? I can hear it. Steady. Stealthy. It knows where to come. I only hope it won't hurt too much. your office. I know you left early. Oh, you didn't eat your supper, bad cat. Are you home, Henry? Now, please, don't play any tricks. You know I don't like tricks. Okay, the first thing I'd say about the story is the script is unusual. It asks questions rather than answers them and we spoke about this kind of thing a number of times with night gallery the idea that a script can 
you know, you don't need to answer everything. And a lot of the times, if you do answer every question, you lose a little bit from it. It's a thing that Sale and kind of occasionally plays with, you know, maybe the final solution isn't as important as the uh, the journey to it. But with this, I mean, it throws up so many questions. I mean, is Barbara actually involved? Is it all in his head? I mean, obviously, it's definitely true that uh, the Orden camera, played by uh, Nimoy, is blatantly slipping into insanity, but the question is whether the tiger is real or not, whether it's a trick, like, say, maybe, like, uh, Last Rites of a Dead Druid, this idea that maybe the friend knows a little bit more than she's letting on to. Um, but also, you know, did he kill his wife? Is he that involved? What was going on? There's loads of little ambiguities in there. Um, for me personally, I think it's really a story about guilt. It is um, a story about a man who possibly, when his wife is extremely ill, thinks some pretty grim and bleak things and feels terrible that he felt it. And it's that guilt which is the haunting in this story. I don't actually think he gets mauled by a tiger. I think he kills himself. But, I mean, again, it's entirely up for interpretation. And that's possibly the good thing about it. Um, I love the fact it's in his mind. Um, a lot, I mean, I, I think I mentioned before, a lot of uh, my research in terms of the trivia and stuff has to come from the After Hours tour book. Uh they are really down on this story, probably massively so, in fact, in comparison to some of the, some of the things they let off. Um, the reason why they don't like it is because they think it's kind of confused, uh, mainly because of the script. Um, and, you know, it's kind of complex, and if they think that uh, Finneman struggled. I mean, Nimoy, there's a quote in it from Nimoy that says, Jerry had a tough script. It was kind of vague, the story was kind of ephemeral. As I recall, a little tough to get your hands on exactly what was going on. Um, but I think there is an element of that, uh, you know, it, it, it might be true that it is, it is that, but I think you've got to embrace those kind of qualities, you know. And I think he does it, you know, reasonably well. As a cinematographer, right, Finneman uh, says that he probably couldn't grasp the conceptualism that was going on in the piece. He says, It's my conviction that cinematographers generally do not make good directors because they are too visual. Now there have been many, some famous cinematographers who have directed, Victor Fleming, George Stevens, Rudy Mate, Guy Green, Freddie Francis. I look at their work and I can tell that sometimes the photographer overlaps the director, and that's not good. You have to tell the story like a director and disconnect yourself from the total lighting aspect. And that's what we don't do. I used to get frustrated directing. I spent so much time in getting the look what I felt I often overlooked something with the people. It wasn't that fulfilling. Um, to his credit though, he's got Nimoy. So he's kind of hit, he kind of strikes lucky. He knew, he used to work with him uh, on Star Trek so the, you know they were friendly and I think because he's that kind of actor and he's a fearless actor Nimoy you know what I mean he throws himself into these roles and these kind of overarching but he's got he's, 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 he's contained enough that it's not you know 
well, his co-star on uh, Star Trek, you know what I mean? Uh, Shatner, kind of just over-the-top, amazingly explosive. You know, he's, he's, enough, he's enough in him that he can show fear and a mental breakdown to such an extent without being overwhelming and, like, you know, kind of, like, just massive ham, 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 cheese, cheese, cheese. But, um, you know, on the whole, is it brilliant? No, it's not. The script is a little confusing. It's not the best directed. Nimoy is fantastic. The music isn't great. It's kind of quite heavy-handed from Eddie Sorter trying to do this uh, kind of like catty kind of tunes. Doesn't really help. But on the other hand, there's still a warmth to the piece. And, uh, well, mainly through Nimoy, he's able to, to anchor it together. Uh, and Finneman, I mean, yeah, he overlights it. You see the cat every two minutes, and then you see the tiger and the, the leopard and all that kind of stuff. You see these animals every few minutes, which doesn't help. Um, because, you know, the mystique's gone. It's too... It's too. Uh, it's very brightly lit as well. There's not a lot of of shadow or darkness or to, to create dread it's just there's a giant cat in your house ah, kind of thing you know which is a problem but uh, not the end of the world on the whole I enjoy it but it isn't the best and the house is what full of ghosts yes that's it and you need me yes how much what'll you give me if you want to contact me, please do. My email address is chris at thetwilightzonenetwork.com. If you go to www.thetwilightzonenetwork.com, there's so links, stories, podcasts, all that kind of stuff that we do to kind of entice you in. Lots of rod sailing information. There's also links to our Facebook page and our Twitter. And also, if you want to speak to me directly, uh, the quickest way is always through my personal Twitter, which is at orange underscore monkey. Next week, uh, we've got a great little tale, I think. The Ring with the Red Velvet Ropes. Um, the story of... Uh, it feels Twilight Zone, but it isn't a Salem script. And it has a really strong narrative to it. Uh, I really enjoy it. I think it's one of my, my favourite ones from this season. So until then, take care, and I'll speak to you soon. Goodbye.